This is Susan Chestnut of the Chestnut Law Firm. This is my podcast, From Foster Care to Family Law, a Child Welfare Focus. I was raised in the foster care system. I was a child abuse investigator for the Department of Children and Families, and now I'm an attorney practicing family law where my passion is to focus on the best interests of the children involved. In my podcast, I will be meeting with industry experts exploring the seemingly impossible scenarios that families often struggle to manage. Each episode will include insights and concepts from professionals that deal with these issues every day. Good morning, this is Susan Chesson. I'm a family attorney in Bureau Beach and I have with me Dr. Nancy Brichek. Good afternoon, Dr. Brichek, how are you today? I'm good, how are you? Pretty good. So when I had a conversation with you before, we talked about you being a court-appointed expert and a social investigator and a parenting coordinator, can you tell people what that what those things really are? The parent coordinator, you think of as kind of a coach for the parents. Because what's good about it is that it's a confidential process between the parents. So that's the most important thing, that when they come in, that what is said in the parent coordination is going to stay there. Of course, unless there is a duty to warn where you might have to let somebody know there's a danger going on, or you have direction from the court for a specific thing, but primarily so that the parents can talk because they're usually parents who are struggling. They might be high conflict, um, but even anyone going through a divorce is going to have a lot more stress than they normally do. So it's a way to help to facilitate the communication with the parents while they're going through a dissolution, or it can be even after their divorce, if they continue to need some help because they're still not cooperating productively or they're not sure how things are gonna go, or they have things you can best think of as kind of a coach for the parents. Because what's good about it is that it's a confidential process between the parents. So that's the most important thing that when they come in, that what is said in the parent coordination is going to stay there. Of course, unless there is a duty to warn where you might have to let somebody know there's a danger going on, or you have direction from the court for a specific thing but primarily so that the parents can talk because particular to their children or their lifestyles that still need some help. So basically a parent coordinator is if they're assigned before the dissolution, they will focus on the communication, but also helping educate the parents about what a parenting plan means. What we will go over each of the elements and we'll talk about those things in detail say what does it mean to say each parent can sign their child up for extracurricular activities in their own time and we talk about how that's going to play out because sometimes the parents will say oh yeah that sounds good that sounds good and i'll go wait a minute let's talk about the different scenarios that might happen and plan for the now and the later and and how they're going to co-parent right right because i feel Part of my job is to help them get ready for mediation to understand the parenting plan. So when they go in, hopefully they will have been able, I've had some parents who just settle everything and I send my notes to the attorneys and they write it up and they do the attorney, they make it legal. Mm -hmm. Um, 
complicated a little bit, right? Right. Or sometimes on the parenting plan um, that they'll submit, I'll, they'll submit, the attorneys will submit and they'll say judge needs to decide on the, on the side. They've, you know, they've agreed to everything else, but they're, it's usually time sharing that they don't agree to. And the judge is going to decide if they don't get it done in mediation. But as we know, most people will get that decided. So after dissolution, once they do have their parenting plan, there's always some things that are going to have to be adjusted. So we help them with the small adjustments. We can't help them with big adjustments like swapping more, you know, changing fundamentally the time sharing. We can help them decide how they want to do it. But again, nothing's legal until the person in the black robe signs off on it. The judge signs off on it. Do you make any of those decisions or is it the parents that make the decision? The parents make decisions, right. It's very clear the parents do. They're there to get the benefit of my education, experience, and training. But I have had rarely a judge will appoint me primarily from Palm Beach County. Dr. Vrechek's going to decide X, Y, or Z. And even if I get that order, I still try to get them to decide on it. And we talk about it. Okay. Do you, when you're doing your parent coordination between the parents, I mean, is this a, a lengthy process or is, how does that work? Well, it's interesting. Some parents, I've maybe had two, three, four sessions. And I have some parents that I have worked with for over six years and I might not talk to them for a year, but when they've gotten stuck or something's come up, even very good co-parents, but they just feel they want to consult. Let's talk about it. This is going on with the child. So it's a great way to use it. I like to, I like to get the parents to where they're working more cooperatively. And then I put them on what I call parent directed parent coordination. That means the agreement is if somebody needs a session, they'll write me and then we'll have a session, but I won't initiate it. Well, just to clarify, you said in the beginning that it was confidential between the parents. Did you mean that you don't tell them what the other parent says? No, no, no. We, we meet together. Oh, that's what I thought. Okay. Right. But it means if someone calls the other one a name, I don't run to court and tell and rat on them. Okay, good. The other thing that's important is I tell the mother, I can talk to your attorney about you. I tell the father, I can talk to your attorney about you, but I can't talk to the attorney about the other parent. That's fair. And so that I often find if I have some trouble maybe with a parent talking to the, the attorney will help. I'll say, look, this is what's going on. I think they need some counseling. The, you know, they have a hard time. They're obviously depressed or emotional control. And I'd rather not do it like tell them in the parent coordination, you need to get some counseling because it changes the power a little bit going on. And I want them to try to be equal. Now, some of the parents have a hard time because they feel, why do I have to sit here and listen to him or her put me down? Because part of what they need to learn is how to have Teflon. They need to hear me role model how they could respond to it. Right. And right there in the moment, I could tell the one parent, you know, you may want to say it this way. You're being very provocative and I don't think you even know you're being provocative. 
so emotional, right? People right. are thinking of their emotions right. and not necessarily thinking logically sometimes. When you're talking about parent coordination, is there a point where you can determine whether or not they might be more appropriate for another service or are you able to participate with them in individual counseling as well or are you limited just to the parent coordinator role? How does that work if they work? Because I know you do private and individual and family counseling, right? With your right, family. but once you can't change roles. Okay. If you're a therapist, you can't be a parent coordinator. If you're a parent coordinator, you can't be the therapist. But the parent coordinator can get a release and talk to the therapist. Well, that would help, yeah. Okay. Yes. Also, another role might be... What about a social investigator? I, sometimes we talk about children's needs, like the parents say you have a child who's got a learning disability and they haven't been reevaluated in four or five years from the school. Whoops, we need to have a team meeting and the kids are struggling and helping the parents. And I could even call the school and speak to the school. Sometimes I'll get the evaluation back that another psychologist has done, a psychoeducational evaluation or a, another psychological evaluation of the child. And I can interpret it for the parents. I can go over it and tell them what all that lingo really means. And that's helpful for them. I can help them with selecting a therapist. And I'll usually say, get your insurance, get the list. You all, I make them research them some, and then we'll look them up together. And do you do that maybe with school choice too? Yes, yes, we've done that with school choice. Good, good point. That's often something that I see parents have disagreements about is the school selection. Right. A lot, a lot. So then going to another service, sometimes the parents, they're just not going to get anywhere. It's not worth it to try to do the parent court. There's too much personality problems between them to make it productive. The parent coordinator can recommend what's called a social investigation. It used to be called a custody evaluation, but now we, because we have the presumption of co-parenting, it's called a social investigation. Again, that also destigmatizes because different schedules work for different kids. The idea of custody, if someone has a little bit more, somehow they're better than the other. But by destigmatizing and talk about more about what's the best interest of the children in different time-sharing schedules, it keeps the parents more co-parents rather than one's up and one's down. Well, the truth of the matter is that the, the time-sharing schedule is supposed to be based on your individual children and what their needs are and what's in their best interest. And 50-50 is not always in their best interest. Sometimes someone has to make the decision on what's in their best interest. And that's what you're doing in a social investigation, right? Well, I don't make the decision. I make a recommendation. Right. And I always hope that when I do a social investigation, which is really a comprehensive study of the family, it's to get the history, to speak with the grandparents, speak with other people who are involved, and to get the school records and the medical records, and to have comprehensive interviews with each parent and the children, and put it together in a report with in mind what the decision-making or direction from the court is, what the standard they're looking at, and then I'll provide an analysis according to those standards. And then I'll make recommendations for the parenting plan. I have to tell you, it's always my hope and what I really try to keep in mind 
when I'm doing the parenting plan is I hope that the parents can read it, step back and take a deep breath and look at what their strengths and weaknesses are. Because every parenting plan is gonna talk about the strengths and weaknesses of each parent and that they can mediate it and decide and put it to rest. Because there's such empowerment when the parents can mediate and make that decision together that they wrote it. That was their decision, not someone else's decision. Well, it's empowering and you're more likely to follow it if it's your decision because it's it's, it's your idea and those are always the good ones, right? We don't right, want, exactly. We don't want someone else deciding how what is best for us. You know, that's what judges do when parents can't agree and your recommendations as a social investigator. Are you also able to do like mental health or personality assessments on individuals as part of the social investigation? A part of a social investigation is to always assess the mental health and substance use of each of the parents. So in that, as psychologists, we have specialized tests mm -hmm. with norms for people who are in litigation or family court. And we say, okay, say someone's anxious, but if they're compared against other people who are in litigation, well, they may not be more anxious than the group normally is anyway. Right. And we know that within two years post-litigation, most parents are going to settle down and do okay. They really do. But sometimes you, the court will order a parent capacity exam. Say the parent is, has a known history of substance abuse. They've had very, a lot of difficulty with recovery. And they may just, the court may just need a parent capacity exam to give a recommendation of what meaningful way can this person at different stages be involved with the children? How can we move towards a fuller role of being with the children? And they, they tend to call it shoots and ladders. So it's like if you're going up a, a ladder and then the slide is down, if there's a relapse, you go back down to the slide and then you come around and you start on the ladder again. What's the first step we go through, the second step? So that everybody knows what to expect in that way. Sometimes that's especially important. Say someone gets a DUI and they're really having a difficult time, you might just want a parent capacity exam that will help the court understand the capability of the parent. Sometimes a parent becomes disabled. Say they're in a car accident and they're in a wheelchair, but they've recovered, but their capacity is diminished. They shouldn't just lose their child because exactly. of that. So a, a psychologist or someone particularly who has understanding of disability and can look at ways, you know, what do we expect? This person now may not be able to earn the income that they earned in the past. So they might need to look at their vocational potential given their disability and also what physical things, what do they need help with? If they're teenagers, they might not need any help. But if you have little children, well, if there's a grandmother available or an aunt who lives next door or an uncle, maybe that's all the help they need. Or maybe they need really uh, substantial help. Now, the social investigations, are there particular types of cases that they're best suited for? Is there insidious behavior? Is this something that you can uncover? 
I think when you have um, some domestic violence, an established history of domestic violence or accusations of it, mm -hmm. sometimes people, and really I have to fault some therapists for overusing terms. They call it, well, this is, I've been subjected to domestic violence. Well, it might be nastiness, but it doesn't really rise to the level of legally what domestic violence is. It might be that they're just mean you know and, and it's not healthy right it's not it's healthy. not healthy but it's you know we have to so that helps to tether out are we talking about the legal standard are we talking about does it contribute to poor parenting right and so, as an attorney and how much proof i can provide just with individual witnesses you know to to be able to have evidence or an opinion and recommendation on the type of thing that you are talking about requires an expert in opinion. How long does this process generally take then for that type of case for a social investigation? How, how well, thorough is it? Before we go to that, let me list the other ones out. Okay, okay. so domestic violence, special needs, I explained that. If there's alienation, and if there's alienation going on, there's usually a person who has a personality disorder. And sometimes they can't see it. And sometimes they're just gonna do everything they can to manipulate the children to look down and degrade the other parent. And that behavior is alienating, right? Correct, right. And they often engage in something called gatekeeping and there's something called facilitative gatekeeping and then there's restrictive gatekeeping. Facilitative is if someone really is um, an active drug user and they're not capable of anything, then you're, you're facilitating, you're holding the child for protection. But if someone is just coming up with these false scenarios about the other parent and accusations that are really probably unfounded or it's this much, not that much, right. then it's restrictive gatekeeping and that's part of the alienation. And the children important for the social investigator to look at are the children alienated because they have a real complaint or are they being given this narrative by the other parent if you're a child and you got spanked all the time and hurt and screamed at by the other parent maybe you don't want to you know you're estranged from them you want to pull back right but if they're just disciplining and they're trying to set standards and limits and the other parent is saying, you know, she always wants to control you. Right. Or he wants to control everything you do. Then you're maligning the other parent. Sometimes there's mental illness. Someone can become destabilized. Say they've been a good parent. Or maybe they had a psychotic process from postpartum. And they really weren't capable. And then the parents get divorced. You really, again, what you're going to embed in there is that shoots and ladders for someone to maintain their stability. And most parents with mental illness have no problem parenting. They really don't. But some require continued stabilization, but they've got to watch what they do. And those parents, that, that might be something for a parenting plan. So the parenting plan can last, say, typically three to six months to do. It can take a long time because there's a lot of information to gather the average number of hours is 40 to 50 hours that are billed. I can tell you as the evaluator, 
I probably spend 150 hours on a plan that I might only bill 40 to 50 hours for. Wow, I had no idea that they, they were that time consuming. Right, well That's the reports, the, the shortest report I ever did, um, I think was about 28 pages and the longest was 130 pages. Wow, wow. So they apparently needed a lot of guidance, 130 pages. It was very complicated. When I'm seeing what's more typical now is a report that's about 50 pages. Mm -hmm. With the alienation, is there, is there a certain point where, I mean, what do you recommend for a, a parent who feels like there's alienating behavior, but it's not, it's more of the, you know, the gatekeeping that you were talking about that's not the facilitative gatekeeping it's more of the restrictive you know, yes the restrictive gatekeeping but it you know it seems like that behavior is really hard if you don't have it all put together to say that that's what it is how do you as the other parent combat that what it, i mean i'm sure you tell your children i love you very much and you can't have those conversations with them about how they're developing their opinions of you necessarily. So what do you do as the other parent there? It's, it's a matter of degree. By the time I get it, it's usually pretty entrenched already. And that's more difficult. And so my recommendations might include reunification therapy. They might include a period of unfettered time sharing by one parent, because we know about 75% of children when there's an, an established alienation case, if the other parent has some uninterrupted time of about three months, 75% of those cases will renormalize. Very interesting. Yeah, so I had one case actually in Vero and God bless the judge, really saw something going way out of line and gave the parent a lot of makeup time sharing, a lot. And even that was still sabotaged. But in the end, the court took over that case, you know, got my information, but the judge made more restrictive recommendations than I did. So well, if, you, if you can't get that, let's suppose you, you just, you haven't seen us talk about it and you don't know that these exist for you. You don't have an attorney what is some things that you can do right now if you don't have the luxury of okay. that period of time? You can get on Amazon and or your Kindle, and there's a new book that's out by a name, last name is Eddie, E-D-D-Y, and it's called Splitting. When you're divorcing someone with narcissistic or borderline personality, and it's a great book, and I actually think probably anyone who's in a high tension they don't have to have that diagnosis, which is kind of misused some. But anytime there's contentious co-parenting, I think the book is good because it gives a lot of ways to manage situations and helps the person look at how they get sucked in to the negative discussion and how to get out of it. One thing that the book also recommends, which I totally agree, is always take the high road. If you can, always take the high road. That's the advice that I give to my clients every right. time is to do the right thing. And it, most of the time doing the right thing is the answer. Right. 
sometimes the right thing is let the other person get arrested too. Sometimes. It is the right thing because people need those. Sometimes people need that. Right. And a lot of times the person who is more vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable, they, they get preyed on for their goodwill. Oh, I don't want to do that. Cause it, but you know, if something gets so egregious and so out of hand, let the natural consequences happen. Yeah. Well, all right. On a happy note. Yeah. <laughs> How do you take um, social investigations and when do you think about when they're necessary from your standpoint? I recommend them to a lot of my clients because I feel like most of the issues between parents, I'm not a mental health professional and it's very difficult for me in the role as an attorney because they give us the role of counselor and I can see things, but I don't have a mental health professional degree and I can make recommendations. But I, when I see a large amount of discord and it's illogical or there's you no know, overreactive, the, the reaction to whatever the situation is just disproportionate to, to what it is, I, I start to notice those things. And when I see stuff like that, I very much so recommend the social investigations, but it doesn't it's not always an option that's available for people. Thanks for listening to this episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, A Child Welfare Focus. I hope that this interview provided some valuable insight to help you deal with your unique circumstances. If you found this episode useful, please share this with friends and family that could benefit from this information. If you have a family law need or related matter, please contact me directly and I will be happy to help you.